0: Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 924. To begin the program, David Lorla welcomes Chris Atterbury, broadcaster for the Minnesota Twins, and Jared Sandler, broadcaster for the Texas Rangers. David begins the conversation by asking Chris and Jared to grade their respective clubs through the season so far, which must be done relative to expectations. The trio discusses things like Franmil Reza's line versus Quinta Maeda, Adoles Garcia's wrestling career in Cuba, and Isaiah Kiner-Falefa playing with a chip on his shoulder. They also ponder the concept of if Williams' Asadillo could possibly be not striking out enough. David, Chris, and Jared also marvel over the strangeness of the game we all love, especially lately.
1: If you love the minutia of baseball and the uniqueness of it, that was one that certainly caught my eye and certainly apparently other people's too, because that shouldn't happen, right? I mean, that's like the Hobby Bias play today. You shouldn't get in a rundown between first and home and allow a run to score and be safe at second base. But that's why we show up to the ballpark every day, because you never know when you're going to see something like a, a naked guy in the tarp, you know, that you've never seen before.
0: After that, Ben Clemens welcomes Fangraph's contributor Justin Choi to the show. Justin shares how he got started at Fangraphs before he and Ben talk about sliders in the shadow zone. They also go over Brian Shaw's pitch mix, Adrian Hauser's success, and what Hyunjin Ryu is doing differently this year. Finally, they talk about the pitching unicorn that is Kyle Hendricks.
2: Kyle Hendricks is that one pitcher who always ends up in different analysis. Yeah. <laughs> like He always finds a way because he's such a special pitcher and he does things that pretty much defied the rules of pitch design and what we know about baseball but he's also a case study in the sense that well if Hendricks can do it then maybe other pitches can do it too but they don't really do it
0: (laughs) right Right. fangraphs audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters we want to say thanks to luke cooper for his art design on the new fangraphs audio logo luke is another one of our new contributors and he is also assisting with graphics including on the twitch channel thanks luke If you enjoy the podcast or our Twitch shows or the daily analysis and stats and leaderboards and everything else we do at the site, consider checking out our merch page. We have swag as well as ad-free subscriptions for yourself or a gift. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show.
3: Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guests on these segments are Chris Atteberry, broadcaster for the Minnesota Twins, and Jared Sandler, broadcaster for the Texas Rangers. Gents, thanks for coming on to uh, to Fangraphs Audio.
4: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, man.
3: Let's start with uh, the fact that Memorial Day weekend is upon us. We're actually recording on Thursday afternoon. This is a good weekend, the unofficial start of summer, to take the temperature of teams around the league and see how the seasons are are shaping up. So with that in mind, I would like each of you to sign a letter grade to your respective teams.
1: Jared, you go first.
4: So I I think it's important from a Rangers standpoint to – understand the goals of this season if if someone was just uh grading their their year based on trying to win a world series then uh that grade wouldn't be too flattering but for the rangers the goal was to build towards the future so on that end i i think i'd say you know b minus you know I, I think the the big the big knock thus far is that leodi Tavares, who a lot of people believe will still be the the center fielder of the future didn't uh, have a good start to the year and and was sent down to Triple A, uh, but he's just 22 years old, so I don't think that that's uh, uh, putting the Rangers in panic mode by any means. But I, I think you know there's a, a, a huge question mark surrounding Adolis Garcia. I mean, he's definitely been the most exciting part of the season, you know. But what's his future? Uh, and have the Rangers found something or someone for the future? But What I think the big win for the Rangers has been is even though he didn't pitch that well yesterday, Dane Dunning, uh, whom the Rangers acquired for Lance Lynn, does appear to be someone that can uh, have a spot in the rotation moving forward. They've gotten a really nice year out of Isaiah kiner falefa He's built upon uh, the offensive progress he made last year. Nick Solak and Willie Calhoun have bounced back. Willie Calhoun in particular has looked good at the plate, which is really important because he probably is best utilized as a DH, and so the bat is even more significant. Uh, and so I think uh, on that end, you know they they are making progress and getting answers towards the future. If the you know if you're looking at through the lens of hey, is this team going to compete for a playoff spot, or uh, you know are they going to contend for a World Series? Then you know that's that's not going to be a B minus. But I also think David the the key might be on, and I think the trade deadlines July. 30th this year, whatever it is, July 31st or August 1st, the day after the trade deadline, that's going to be an important day to reassess where the Rangers are to see what sort of assets they've been able to bring into the organization.
1: Wow, tough act to follow. Now, Jared went to USC, so grade inflation is kind of his deal, so (laughs) it's going to be a little different for me. So the Twins obviously have been terrible, right? I mean, as we talk, the team just won their 20th game. They're still nine games under this is a team that certainly had internal and external expectations to not only be competing with Chicago for the top of the division, but to finally break that playoff curse and and be a legitimate contender. So on that front, it's been horrible. I'm going to cop out a little bit and give the team an incomplete grade, though, uh, because I don't know what, what this team is yet, and I'll have a better answer in two weeks. They're in the middle of this stretch where still not healthy, right? Byron's their best player, and he's been out, and and everybody's been banged up. But everybody around the league gets banged up. That's just part of baseball. Uh, but I think this stretch with Baltimore, who they just swept, and then Kansas City, then Baltimore, then Kansas City. Like, are you a Baltimore-Kansas City peer? Or are you better than that? And if you are, you've got to win a bunch of these games. You've got to go, like, you know, 10-2, and 9-3. and three. And at that point, you can start having a conversation about grinding towards the top half of your division. I look at the club every night when I fill in the lineup card, and I think, well, well, yeah, we should win with these guys. And yet, they never do. The bullpen has been horrific. It's getting better. But the way that was handled in the offseason certainly didn't pan out. Guys who were terrible at the start of the year, guys like Sanoa and Garver, are considerably better. Alex Kirloff is where he belongs in the middle of the lineup. So what can this team actually look like when Byron Buxton does get to play every day? Better than it's been. But certainly they've dug themselves such a big hole that to give them a, a passing grade would be some abject homerism because they they failed miserably through the first 40 games and are only now beginning to to do the due diligence to, to get back into relevancy.
3: Right. So you are going with an incomplete. Incomplete. So, so you, you are accusing Jared of USC guys being, you know, glasses half full. It sounds to <laughs> me like maybe Stanford guys are, they don't know where their
1: glass is.
4: They're too smart for their own good
1: we have somebody carrying that glass around for us and then they just, we just have them fill it up with sparkling water from the finest private uh, springs. Uh, But uh, yeah, I think that, that, that's what I, it's two teams in two completely different places. Right. And I think that on that note alone, then yeah, you'd say the twins have failed miserably because of expectation, but I do think that we're also 40 games in. So they, they failed the first quarter, but they still got a chance to pull out a passing grade uh, over the rest of the summer.
3: No, it is certainly early. I am actually drinking a uh, a sparkling water right now, but it, it is only Canada Dry, so not, mm-hmm. n- nothing too fancy and they are not a sponsor of FanGraphs Audio yet. At, la- at least not yet. Yeah. I want to go to uh our all, our favorite thing which is Twitter. First Jared, you follow 999 people, so you need to add one more to that. I I don't know who that should be, but yes, you you need to follow one more person. But Chris, you tweeted something uh recently. That really caught my eye, and I and I will quote it. Kenta Maeda has faced Fran Miel Reyes four times this year. He has thrown four pitches. Reyes is four for four with three home runs and a single. That's pretty remarkable.
1: Yeah, that was probably the most popular tweet that I that I ever had. I'm I'm not much of a tweeter. I had to unfollow Jared too because he was such a prolific tweeter, and I couldn't keep up. And he had all these contests going, and I found myself feeling like I wanted to move to Dallas and I couldn't focus on my work here in Minnesota. <laughs> so I might have to go back and rejoin him at some point. But yeah, Maeda, the first start was in Cleveland and it went Homer, I think it went Homer, Homer single. And before the last, no, it was Homer single Homer before the, the, the second Homer, Corey and I were on the air and I, I go, well, he can't, he's not throwing him a, a hittable pitch, right? Then we laughed and then he hit it out of the puck. And we're like, oh, this isn't good. So coming around to our place weeks later, And as he's digging in in the first inning, we're like, well, we know what happened last time. You know, he's going to bounce this one and kaboom. So he didn't make it five for five. He he threw a pitch out of the zone in the fifth plate appearance. But if you love the minutia of baseball and the uniqueness of it, that was one that certainly caught my eye and certainly apparently other people's too, because that shouldn't happen. Right. I mean, that's like the hobby bias play today. You shouldn't get in a rundown between first and home and allow a run to score and be safe at second base. But that's why we show up to the ballpark every day, because. You never know when you're going to see something like a, a naked guy in the tarp you know, that you've never seen before.
3: Yes, I, th- I think I've heard that line before. <laughs> yeah, and there was a certain amount of absurdity in the Reyes Maeda, too, because I took a look at the box score, and Maeda actually struck him out in that fifth at-bat. And that is the last at-bat that Fran Miel has had. He promptly went on the IL with an oblique injury. So Yeah, he couldn't
1: a- finish the, the la- next at-bat because he swung and missed so hard that he got hurt, which was uh, kind of scary to see.
3: Yeah, the the baseball gods were angry at that at that strikeout. Yeah, Chris, let's stick with you. I jump around the MLB app a lot to games, and it seems like every time that I have gone to a Twins game this year, Luis Arise is hitting the ball hard for an out, quite often with runners on base. Am I bad luck for Arise, or is, has that actually happened often this year?
1: You know, it, it's happened a fair amount. I think it's it seems like it happens more because he hits the ball hard more than most guys. And so, as a rule, he doesn't make a lot of soft outs. Uh, so he's had the same runs of luck that, that everybody has where you feel like you're hitting it right at him and, and eventually it will fall in. And we've seen him have the the stretches where it does fall in. He's on the injured list now, but I think a guy like Arise is similar to a guy like Alex Kirilov. When he hits it, he really hits it. You know, everything's on the barrel. He sprays it around. You don't see a lot of pop-ups. You don't see a lot of swing and miss. Uh, sometimes to his detriment, and you don't see a, a lot of weak contact. And that's just the hitter that he is. And, you know, as advanced as reports are now, he ends up hitting a lot into the teeth of that shift in shallow right field. Uh, and he'll make some outs there. But he's a tough guy to shift too because he'll spray it foul line to foul line. But I just think if you hit the ball hard all the time, uh, you're going to up your opportunities to hit the ball hard at people in those spots. But I'd take my chances with louie hitting the ball hard with guys on as opposed to dude swinging and missing or, or popping it straight up into the sky.
3: Yeah, Jared, you mentioned uh, Adolis Garcia earlier. Unless I'm mistaken, he has the lowest soft contact rate in baseball this year. I mean, really, is this an anomaly, or is he going to become a star? I think that it's a fascinating question. You know, we're talking. You're mean Mercedes here, really.
4: Yeah, you it, know, it, it, it really is. And I guess let me first answer it from this lens that. Uh, The front office is going to have an interesting decision because I imagine there will be interest in Adolis Garcia, but I think there's probably going to be a huge gap in terms of what people think he is or who they think he is. And then there's always the leverage play, right? I I might think the sky is blue, but if I can convince you the sky's orange, then I might try and do that if it's going to cost me less. And because he's got – Full control essentially, you know, around five and a half years come deadline time. Are the Rangers going to view him as a valuable asset with whom they've got a lot of control and don't want to move? Will teams, uh, you know, when they put together a package that would include a return of Adolis Garcia, how are they going to view him? Uh, and You know, then for the Rangers internally, do they think that this is a 15 minutes of fame thing or do they think that there's staying power? And I'll actually use a former twin and former Ranger as a recent example that Rangers fans are talking about. And that's Danny Santana, who had a nice rookie season with the twins and then never was the same after getting handed the keys to uh, the car that next year. I think he was uh, the year after he finished top 10 in the American League Rookie of the Year vote. Uh, he ended up, uh, what, Chris, he was the leadoff hitter and st- uh, opening day center fielder that next year, if I'm not mistaken, and just couldn't hack it, and then reemerged with the Rangers a couple years ago, was the Rangers player of the year, and then last year was uh, lost at the plate and then got hurt, and you know haven't really heard uh, from him since.
1: Yeah, he reemerged actually in my spring training hotel. I ran into Danny and his beard. He had just signed with the Red Sox, and he kind of got... Uh, I think in a bit of a bind where the the organization, there were different ideas about what kind of player he was going to be. He was a little fast guy and they wanted him to run. And they wanted him like a lot of like twins guys at the time to be a utility guy, play all over the place. And then other people said, no, he's our shortstop. And they said, no, he's not our shortstop. Now he's our center fielder. So I feel like he kind of got short shrift in terms of the ability to just settle in and become what he was going to become. And then when he reinvented himself in Texas, now he's a muscle man pulling home runs, which is what he did for Boston the other day. Too. So, I I mean, the, and the other thing is he was young, right? Adoles Garcia is 28. He's the toughest looking dude in baseball. I, I texted Jared when I first saw him with my own eyes here. I was like, I, that guy, if they had a cage match in, in Major League Baseball, that guy wins easy. And then I found out about his wrestling career. Like, that's the toughest dude in the league when you look at him physically. He is. I mean, that is a strong young man or strong older man.
3: I need to hear about the wrestling career because this is news to
1: me. Yeah, he was a great wrestler in Cuba, right, Jared?
4: Yeah, so in spring training, it was quite clear. Matt Hicks and I you know, were broadcasting these games, and Adolis Garcia, for the second straight spring, really stood out. But for whatever reason, this spring, it, it looked more real as opposed to your typical Cactus or Grapefruit League mirage. And so I asked Chris Woodward, I was like, what can you tell me about this guy? Because of the limited access, I don't have the ability to go up and talk to Adolis Garcia and get to know him and learn things about him and and Woody kind of laughed. He's like, oh, he's, uh, I actually just found out that he was a really good wrestler. And so, the, as best as I can tell you, I wish I could be more detailed about it. But when I asked Adolis about this and and asked some other people, I guess he was you know proper wrestling, not the not the WWE stuff. He was one of the better wrestlers in all of Cuba, which, if you look at him, is not a big surprise. And, you know, if there was maybe more interest in wrestling in Cuba and maybe more of a lucrative future, it's something he might have pursued. But he really looks up to his brother Adonis, who played for the Braves and is, uh, you know, I think five, six years older than him. And because Adonis played baseball, that's what Adolis wanted to do. And it's working out right now. And, you know, the the thing I'd say about him is, you're right, Chris. There's no mistaken identity here. You know, the Rangers know what he can be uh, as far as, you know, he's an outfielder. He's not, they're not moving him around. They're not trying to change the way he, he hits. You know, he's an outfielder who can slug. And the cool thing is, you know, he he is not a liability defensively. They've they've put him in center field for most of this season. He's actually been pretty good there. He's got a really good arm. He's He's got athleticism, gets good jumps. The one thing that is going to be a big question, and the reason why it's taken him so long to emerge, is can he lay off bad pitches enough? You know, he's never going to be an Alex Bregman. He's not going to be a Luis Arise, right? He's not going to be someone who's going to walk more than he strikes out. But is he going to give in too much? to where it becomes easy to pitch him. And that's the big question. So far, I don't think teams have been able to consistently take advantage of that. Right now, it does seem like the elevated fastball has given him problems. But as I say that, yesterday he hit a home run on a pitch that was like you know six inches above the strike zone. So I don't think anyone really knows for sure, is he a late-blooming Nelson Cruz or is he a guy who next year is, is, str- is going to struggle to make a starting lineup? I think it could be anywhere. Although I would lean more of everyday player than I would someone who we're going to forget about in a couple of years.
1: But guys, remember the marketplace too. Home runs and home runs and strikeouts. We accept those now, but the, also only if they're cheap. And then once you make too much money, you you get cut loose, and they get another cheap guy to hit home runs and and strike out, and he doesn't cost a lot of money. I think the comp might be was it Fames when he came back from Korea for Milwaukee. Hit a bunch of home runs, and he was on a, a low dollar deal before. A, a big muscle up guy who could who could clobber a lot of home runs, and that's valuable for a while. Right up until you can find somebody else who can do it.
3: Yeah, Chris, I'd like to hear your thoughts on a player who does not hit a lot of home runs and rarely strikes out, and that is Williams Astudillo.
1: Yeah, he's he's something. Uh, he, he is something. I tell you what, the guy loves to play. I think his contact and the fact that he doesn't strike out. We People love to talk about it because it's unique and because we're trying to figure out how to get contact back in the game. But what they also miss is that it's something my partner, Dan Gladden, talks about a lot, how he wishes he swung and missed more because he would make soft contact or foul the ball off and wish, gosh, I wouldn't, I shouldn't have swung at that. I wish I could get another pitch. As often as Ostadio gets a first pitch hit, he hits into a first pitch double play or he a first pitch pop up, uh, you know, things of that nature. What makes him great for us is he plays everywhere. He has energy. Uh, He's a nut. Uh, The fans love him. His value does go down in our current roster setup, where he's the second catcher because now you're not as liberal to use him at second or at short or third, and we're super banged up there, so we kind of miss that without having two actual catchers plus plus Williams Ostadillo, who you're not going to ride with behind the plate every day. So he's unique, man. The guy has uh, back-to-ball skills. He loves to play. He's got instinct. He's got energy. Uh, he is certainly unique. Uh, but if you had a whole team full of him, the games would be really short, but I don't know how successful you'd end up, you'd end up being, cause he does put a ton of balls in play. His, his curse is, it's kind of like Ben Revere, right? His curse was he could get a ball, a bat on everything. And so he swings at everything, but sometimes you're better served to not swing at everything and wait till you get the one you can really hammer. He's so confident that he can hit any pitch, uh, that he usually
4: does. Chris, didn't you say that if you got a hit tonight, you would uh, grow out your hair and have a williams Astadio hairstyle for the rest of the year? Or am I making I, that up? Know,
1: Jared, I'll give you that guarantee because we're off today. Oh. So <laughs> I will absolutely give you that. <laughs> nice move. Just because you grew your hair out during the pandemic and you've got the big, long Billy Ray Cyrus hair going now, doesn't mean that we all have to do
4: well, it. Well, I, I got a haircut. And, have- and David, I also, David's on my team on this. And David, I don't know if you've gotten a haircut recently, but last I saw, you've also grown your hair out.
3: Yeah, I have not actually cut my hair since before the pandemic now, so.
4: no oh
1: boy. That sounds like he's got the Astadio man bun coming right now.
3: Yeah, man bun is something that I probably will not be caught in. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to jump to a guy that you can both address pretty well. It's, it's a former twin pitching well for the Rangers, which is, of course, Kyle Gibson. I happen to be listening to a national baseball commentator a week into the season who actually said that Gibson would be, and I believe his exact quote was, a fifth starter, if that, on a first division team. And I think that Kyle Gibson is maybe proving this gentleman wrong.
4: Yeah, no kidding. Yo, Chris can speak to how easy it is to root for this guy and and how awesome of an individual he is. We've gotten a taste of that. But again, his time with the Rangers has coincided with the pandemic and the limited uh ability to really get to know these guys but from a pitching standpoint he was bad last year like really bad and a lot of a lot of us thought that this year he would be a lot better for two reasons one it's really tough for a guy with his track record to replicate how bad he was last year but two he dealt with ulcerative colitis and and rangers people and rangers fans have experience with that with jake diekman now you know i think it's not necessarily an apples to apples case but You know, Kyle lost out on basically two years of off-seasons to get better. It was all about recovering or just dealing with his uh, ulcerative colitis condition and and effects. And this was his first off-season where the goal this off-season was to become better, not just to survive. Uh, And he has become a lot better. He added a cutter, uh, which just kind of helps some of his other pitches perform better, even if that pitch in a vacuum is not yielding tremendous results Uh, he's been incredibly efficient the walks are down from where they were last year and after an opening day performance in which he got one out he was given a five run lead and gave up five runs in the first inning against the royals and didn't get a second out he has been unbelievable he's got nine straight starts of six or more innings and three or fewer runs in addition to a quality start streak but as you guys know you can give up 100 unearned runs and that's still you can still get a quality start. He's gone 9 straight of 3 runs of any kind or fewer uh, and that tied a franchise record. He's on the IL now with a little bit of a groin thing, but it's not expected it to be a, a long absence, but you know talk about a guy who's, you know, had a 180 from last year and now he even is someone who I think will be talked about frequently when it comes to adding a, you know, starting pitcher for a stretch run and he still has one more year of control beyond this season.
1: Yeah, and Kyle's a guy, so I've known him since the day he was drafted. And I think uh he's a great example of why this world we live in where we use guys until they're like twenty-eight, twenty-nine, and then once they kind of figure out who they are as players and what they do best, then we, we don't want them anymore unless they're a superstar. We want young or superstar, this middle middle age group where there's a lot of real baseball savvy there. And I think Kyle's case is first the, the, the health issue, right? That happened on a on a missionary trip to Haiti. And it happened right before the start of a season here. And it was, he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep, he was in pain. Uh, And that's been really hard. So he's doing a lot better in that regard. And then he had kind of a pitching identity crisis. When we got him, he had Tommy John in college at Missouri. And he came out of a great program there where it was, it was three pitches and get out, right? Like they want ground and pound. He throws that great sinker. Let's get three ground balls and and get in the dugout. And we were under, with Rick Anderson as our pitching coach, mockingly talked about pitch to contact, which makes a lot of sense if you don't use it in a mocking uh, ideal. And then suddenly everyone starts throwing four seamers up in the zone and, and it changes, right? The the launch angles of the swing change to, to adapt to hitting these sinkers. And so Kyle had to change and he went through a couple of pitching coaches. His best year here, he didn't throw the two seamer as much and he started throwing his slider and his four seam up in the zone. And he had a great year. He mixed in a changeup that is an underrated pitch that he can throw at times. And then the next year, for whatever reason, he went back to try to throw more sinkers and didn't have the success, and, and then he goes to Texas. And I think what we saw here, he carved us up, and the slider was great. He's throwing the two-seamer effectively. He doesn't just throw it in the dirt. He throws it up in the zone. That's where he would always get in trouble. He'd try to be fine with it. It would run off the plate. They wouldn't swing. It was 2-0. He was forced into the zone, and, and he'd get hit. Um, but I think the cutter, just the threat of the cutter, in addition to a good slider... He threw the change off the cutter against us and worked up in the zone when he had to. And he's kind of figured out who he is as a pitcher, what he is physically. And as a human being, he's he's top notch. I'll just tell you this. He came back during pandemic protocols are weird. You can't see each other. Our studio is, is in the ballpark and it's in the same concourse between the two clubhouses. So we can't walk by the home clubhouse or by the visiting clubhouse. But after the last game, Gibby came in while I was still doing the post-game show and he snuck in during a commercial break to ask about how my daughter was doing, see how the family was, remembers the board ops by their first name, the producers. That's the type of human you're talking about.
3: No, based on my interactions with them, agree 100%. We're starting to run short on time. There are a few more things I want to touch on. One is we are probably obligated to talk about isaiah kiner Falefa, given that when we did our positional power rankings here at FanGraphs, uh, our projection systems had him as the worst shortstop in baseball and of course that that is projection systems that has nothing to do with anybody's opinions apparently he wasn't really happy with uh being number 30.
4: (laughs) he wasn't so you know it's funny is he he's from hawaii and didn't even get recruited by the University of Hawaii and I don't know if this is what brought it out or if it existed before that but he has a massive chip on the shoulder mentality and it's not it's it's in a charming manner uh you know like responding to the fan uh, fan graphs projection or being pretty vocal about the fact that he feels like he you know can win the platinum glove and uh you know a big part of his identity really is the fact that he's constantly gotten looked over by the University of Hawaii, by the Rangers. The Rangers made him a catcher, you know, essentially. It, they never came out and said it, but essentially because they didn't feel like he could hit enough to be a, an infielder. And he he did it. You know, he tried. Uh, he basically, you know, had a, a, an agreement or an understanding with the Rangers. Hey, I want to go back to being an infielder. I can hit. Let me show you I can hit. He took a big step forward last year. He's taken another step forward this year. And, you know, whether it's just uh, two months worth of sample size or not, just the the exit velocities and the way he's driving the ball are unlike anything we've seen prior. But, you know, he's he's fascinating. I, I will never forget calling a spring training game at Surprise Stadium, and he hit a ball down the left field line, and it was a home run. And, and I made the comment on air because I had seen him play a little bit in the minors. You know, he doesn't have a professional home run. and. Come to find out, that spring training home run was the first home run he's ever hit of any kind. Like even in little league, he never hit a ball over the fence. And now you know he's a guy who's on pace to have around a twenty home run season. And you know the methods by which he goes about improving his craft are you know not cookie cutter. Last offseason, uh, he did something that Colton Wong's done in the past, and that was using an actual axe, not an axe handle bat, but a proper axe and chop wood. You know, his dad is a, a woodcutter, and so he'd bring back lumber, and And Isaiah Kiner-Falefa would swing an axe similar to the path of a bat because the weight distribution of the axe would allow him to gain the, the strength necessary uh, to really drive the ball and get the hands through the zone and whip the bat through the zone. And uh, it's really, really interesting because, you know, coming into this season, a big conversation in Rangers world was – uh, which shortstop were the Rangers going to most uh, aggressively pursue in free agency this offseason? And I don't think what Isaiah kiner is doing is enough to turn the Rangers away from pursuing Trevor Story or Corey Seager or uh, even Carlos Correa. But I do think that if they do not end up with one of those guys – they at least are going to be comfortable and maybe even excited in Isaiah Kiner-Falefa as their shortstop and if they do end up with one of those guys then Isaiah Kiner-Falefa can move over to second he might not be thrilled about that Fangraphs better adjust their rankings but he he very much has this <laughs> chip on the shoulder mentality but he puts in the work to back it up he's not one of these guys who sits on his back backside and says I should you know why don't you guys think I'm better but doesn't do anything about it and it's a really really interesting story
1: when he was at our place, David. By the way, he every t- he made like ten great plays in the series, and every time he made another amazing defensive play, he'd look at Angelton Simmons because I mean Angelton's the gold standard, right? And, and even though we don't see him diving all over the place, he's still way up there and outs above average and whatnot. And he'd look over at Angelton, almost like, "See, see, look, see what I did," and it was awesome.
3: Yeah, Angelton is, is not bad. The axe thing and the chip on the shoulder to me that sounds like something that maybe would come out of a state like Montana.
1: Oh, I swung an axe, but I couldn't hit. Uh, I got the chip and I got the axe. I just didn't get any of the the talent that he has.
3: Yes, Chris, of course, not simply being uh, a Stanford guy, but also a state of Montana guy. Who do people root for in in Montana, Chris? I've never really thought of this. You know, Dave McNally hasn't pitched for quite a long time. It's
1: been a while since McNally and Cody Hewer was just a twinkle uh, way back in his his mom's eyes. His mom probably wasn't born yet. No, when I was a kid, uh, people either rooted for the Mariners. Or the Twins, because the Rockies didn't exist. I rooted for the Giants because I had a clock radio and I could get the KMBR late at night on my little clock radio and listen to Giants games. So I was a Giants guy.
3: Nice. And Jared, you are from California, but I understand that you have a South African background. So you must be a Gift and Gopé fan.
4: I am a huge so i am actually born and raised in Dallas. I went to school in california ah. but i grew up grew up in Dallas, but I'm the only one in my family born in dallas uh brothers parents you know my my aunt's uncles cousins all in south africa parents uh an oldest brother born in south africa uh so when Gift and Gope came up, it was really cool they the pirates actually played the Rangers, and I got to sit down with him and and my dad was so excited. He he gave me some biltong, which is kind of like a a beef jerky equivalent. I think it's a little better, but it's it's something that's very very popular in South Africa. And and uh, he gave me some biltong to give to gifting Gope. And when I got the chance to talk with him, I I gave him the biltong. His face lit up, and it was really cool. I've been to South Africa a few times, but I definitely have a lot of pride in in the heritage. Uh, my grandfather was a, a sprinter there. My dad was a, a professional soccer player. So there's a lot of lot of south african pride and uh i'm looking forward we had a guy in spring training taylor scott who didn't catch on with us i don't think he i don't think he he's made it to the big league or maybe he did i think he he might have uh, had a cup of coffee but a a righty who threw really hard but uh, it's interesting south africa is i don't want to say a growing or baseball is not a growing sport in south africa but it is there i i asked my my family there and i have some cousins who They play both cricket and baseball. It'll be interesting to see if baseball continues to grow there.
3: For sure. Yeah, uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you about, Jared. You used to work for the Great Lakes Loons. You had a 16-year-old pitching for that team, if I'm not mistaken.
4: It was amazing. That 16-year-old pitched on – I want to say it was July 2nd or July 3rd, which was that year our big July 4th game, and it was the biggest crowd we had all year because opening day in the Midwest League is brutal. It's – snowy windy no one goes to opening day july 4th or the july 4th game is you know the big the, the most attended game and this 16 year old went five innings gave up one hit and i think struck out like nine or ten or something and this guy was like he, we were marveling we had cory seager on the team that year but it was julio urias and, and we called him so he's now what urias I'm, i i get confused because when we were when we had him he was Urias, and now it's Urias, or maybe I have it backwards, but I mean, this kid was, was unbelievable, and Tommy Lasorda got the mic on our, our pregame show, which was uh, broadcasted throughout the entire stadium on the video board and, and on the concourses, and he got the mic, and whenever Tommy Lasorda gets the mic, you're kind of, you're in for a treat, you know, you better, you better buckle up. You don't know, you got to get the dump button ready. But uh, he said this guy's going to win multiple Cy Youngs. So he he's looking at this poor 16-year-old and he's putting that sort of expectation on him. But I mean, he's so talented and it's so exciting to see him healthy and also get you know get he's been given the chance to actually pitch. You know, it doesn't seem like he's on a, a you know as tight of a leash as he's been in the past. But it was super impressive. And then uh, I'll never forget the All-Star break. We get on the bus from Lake County to head back to Great Lakes. They've got a cooler on there. You know, we got obviously a lot of guys 21 and older. And I see Julio Rios walking down the aisle with two tall boys. And I'm like, 60, what? No, don't worry about it. Who cares? Uh, But he's uh, he was pretty impressive. And he's uh, certainly developed into a really good pitcher at the big league level.
3: Two tall boys. That's pretty good. Chris, do you have a, a good story that you can close with?
1: Uh, do you want me to talk about Jared or? Uh, oh.
3: <laughs> hey, if, uh, if you know. have a good Jared story, I think that that is fair I got game. Stories
1: for days. You got to be more specific if you're looking for like a specific story. I mean, we could uh, we could go on all day. I will say this: uh, what I what I miss most about baseball in its current constitution is the lack of the ability to sit down and, and chat with people like Jared face to face. When I go to Texas and we're supposed to be down there in a couple of weeks and I don't think we'll be on the trip. We'll be in our little studio up here doing it to sit down with Jared and my old buddy from college in the TV voice of the Rangers, Dave Raymond. And basically, Jared and I just listen to Dave talk and listen to stories deep, deep, deep into the night. That's my favorite thing in the whole wide world. And that's what we've kind of been missing. And, you know, a a little case of that uh, just recently we had uh, the Oils in and John Means pitched. And I was fiddling around and I realized that John Means had gone to Gardner-Edgerton High School in Kansas, which is, I thought, isn't that Bubba Starling? And I had been, we'd been playing the Royals when they drafted Bubba and you know he was a football star and he was everything. And our longtime scouting director and a Hall of Fame level scout, Mike Radcliffe, uh, lives in Kansas City. So I texted Raddy because we haven't been able to see him in, in, in years. And I said, hey man, your backyard, right? You, you had Means pegged over Starling, didn't you? And he wrote back, Anybody who thought John Means would be the star was revising history. And, you know, stories like that, conversations like that, people like that are at the core of this game, right? We can talk about all the numbers in the world and projections and, and what people are doing and how the stats line up. But at the end of the day, baseball is great because of that. And that's, that's what I miss and that's what I can't wait to get back to.
3: No, for sure. And I think we all miss that. And even though we can't do it face to face, we're all in front of our, our laptops in different parts of the country. We were able to talk baseball here for maybe a little longer than we were scheduled. But hey, it's fun to talk baseball. And Chris, Jared, it was great to have both of you on Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah,
4: thanks for having us, David.
5: Hi, I'm Ben Clemens, and I'm joined by Justin Choi. And hey, Justin, welcome to Fangraphs.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
5: I suppose Fangraphs Audio, not Welcome to Fangraphs. You've been here for a while now. (laughs) So uh, yeah, we're glad to get a chance to have you on the podcast. I say we, I mean, I'm glad to get a chance to go on the podcast too. But um, yeah, how's it going, man? Everyone here has been enjoying your work, and we wanted to get a chance to, you know, talk to you in audio. I don't really know the right way to say that.
2: Yeah, it's been special, just getting a lot of love from different people, very flattered, and I'm happy that I'm able to talk about baseball and write about it for a very good site, so it's been a fun experience.
5: Yeah, I mean, this is a little uh, inside podcast recording, but it's very early where I am, very late where you are. This should be great for everyone, everyone's at their perfect, optimal podcast recording time.
2: Yeah, nice compromise. (laughs)
5: Exactly. I know, theoretically, we should talk about some articles we've written, but... I don't know. I I'm just kind of curious to hear, like you know, about you. Like, how'd you get here? What's the what's what's your journey of in, in writing been like? Everyone likes. I don't know if everyone likes hearing about how writers got their starts, but I sure do.
2: So it's interesting because I've always been a fan of baseball, but I didn't start writing about it until I guess early 2020. So my actual experience is very limited but i got curious because you know Hyunjin Ryu started to have a really good start in 2019 and i wanted to investigate yeah it was almost historic so i wanted to investigate why he was so dominant and then my questions about that led to me discovering sabermetrics and all these advanced analytical concepts and so once i got confident i started writing my own articles in 2020 and the kbo being a thing in the pandemic it helped because I was in demand a lot, you know, being someone who can write about the KBO in English. Yeah, it was
5: probably the best year ever to have that skill set.
2: Right, exactly. So I got a bit lucky and that's how I became in demand. And, you know, I just kept grinding, kept writing. And long story short, I sent in my application for Fangraphs earlier this year and I got in. So I've been writing ever since.
5: And, you know, if the early returns are any indication, like, it's a good thing for readers that you got lucky and got a shot because, I mean, you've been writing some really good stuff. I really enjoyed this Brian Shaw piece a lot. Like, this is the kind of thing that is hard to pick up if you don't, like, like, it's hard to pick up in data, right, for the specific reason that you wrote about, that it it just all blends. How did you figure this out?
2: So, actually, I was watching the Angels and the Cleveland game, and one of the broadcasters, they mentioned how... Shaw might be throwing different cutters. And I wanted to expand on that speculation. And so I looked through the data, and it turns out that, oh, okay, there was a difference between when Shaw wanted to throw a faster, more vertically oriented fastball versus a more slider like cutter. And mm-hmm. I thought that's really cool because in the aggregate, that change doesn't really show. And then I looked into his mechanics and uh it seemed like he had simplified his delivery, he wasn't extending his lower body as much, and so like that all combined to explain why his command has been better, even though the walks were still an issue, but his stuff is very nasty and when I found that connection between you know his better mechanics and the the slight alteration of his fastballs, you know that it kind of clicked for me, and I was able to write a, an article about that
5: yeah I find the um the pitchers who do slightly different things just like really fascinating because. It makes sense, right? Like, of course, pitchers can kind of manipulate their pitches to do different things with. We've all tried to manipulate things we do to be slightly different. But when you look at pitch data, it tells you to just look at it in an aggregate just because the way it's presented. Mm -hmm. So I always find like when you can look into something and find, oh, hey, look, there's actually two like centers here. Like he's actually throwing two different pitches. We're just bucketing as one. It's like a very useful way to learn more about baseball. And I wonder if we if you could split apart more pitchers pitches like. I think cutters and sliders particularly, it seems like guys are able to put some on, take some off in a way that is just really hard to capture with averages.
2: Right, because pitches, they're basically on a spectrum. They're not this binary thing where it's either this or not this, right? So there's this whole spectrum between the fastball and the slider and the cutters sort of in between, but some pitchers have more of a slider-like cutter and some pitchers have a more fastball-like cutter, so... It's interesting how they can manipulate these different fastball shapes or breaking ball shapes to create something that's not really one thing or the other. And and it can be effective because batters can't really pick up on, you know, whether whether it's a slider or a curveball. And so, yeah, like I definitely agree that we should look into that more. And maybe that sort of explains why some pitches are dominant, even though their basic pitch data isn't necessarily the greatest.
5: Yeah, the example I think of is, I guess last year, so Shane Bieber used to throw a slider and a curveball, and then he sped them both up. And then he realized like, well, wait, like my sped up curveball is basically a slider and my sped up slider is basically a cutter. And I can just throw a slow curve too. Like I don't, I don't need to <laughs> to just have two, I can have three and just like added a pitch because just like, because he had already been throwing three pitches and not known it. And yeah, like it, it made him a lot better. <laughs> it, <laughs> It really seems like the guys who are able to do this get some performance bump. I doubt there's much to the fact that uh you know they're both Cleveland pitchers. But yeah, in fact, I doubt there's much to that fact because I bet all pitchers are doing this. But it is at least a coincidence.
2: Yeah. And a lot of the times pitchers don't even know that they're doing this, right? It's just yeah. very instinctual that they're manipulating their pitches. But from an analyst perspective, it's fun to write about because it's like, Oh, it's something that it's not apparent on the surface, but we can figure out, right? It has that sort of allure to it. That's
5: definitely the case. That like the best articles are like, look at this thing that once I explain to you, you'll be like, oh, that's obvious. But until I said it, you didn't see it. Those are like those are fun to write, and Mm -hmm. I think this one rose to that bar just for that reason. That like I don't know, I I knew Brian Shaw was good again this year, but I I hadn't taken enough time to watch, you know, enough of his cutters to know that they were that he had uh, started throwing two different ones or continued throwing two different ones really but refined it.
2: Yeah and it's the same thing about your your article about the slider how there are some hidden truths in there that I didn't really figure out before and one of the the biggest things that surprised me is and you mentioned this in the article too but just the sheer importance of throwing the slider in the shadow zone like the edges.
5: Yeah it's interesting because it makes sense like It generally makes sense. If you you see a pitch located near the corners, everyone says, oh, good location. But no one seems to think of it as like an overriding factor. It's just like a a contributing factor. If you like listen to broadcasts or talk to who pitchers think have the best stuff, there aren't a lot of guys who just say, oh, yeah, well, (laughs) his slider is okay, but he always puts it on the corners. Like I've never I've never really heard that described as like why a pitcher is so great, but it really does seem like it matters a lot.
2: Yeah, and I feel like there's more emphasis on kind of burying the slider in the ground or throwing it somewhere about batter's chase. Yeah. And you don't really pay as much attention to a, a well-placed slider, even though, you know, maybe to us it appears more pleasing, but then, you know, to someone who's just watching casually, it's more, I guess, eye-catching if the slider is very outside the zone and the batter just goes after it. You know, it makes for a good compilation video.
5: Oh, yeah, totally. That is definitely... Some of what goes into, like, why it's not as noticeable is, you know, a backup slider that hits, like, a corner is probably a better pitch than, like, a big breaking slider that bounces. And <laughs> it looks a lot worse. <laughs> it looks like a slow fastball. I was writing about Zach Wheeler, and so not slow fastball. He he throws fast sliders, so they'd be just fine velocity even for a fastball. But, uh, if, like, his slider doesn't have a lot of motion, like, just a lot of, like, side break. And so a lot of times he throws sliders that you'd think of as backup sliders or like, you know, just sliders that just kind of cement mix instead of, uh, instead of breaking. But he's gotten really good at locating it. And I don't know, the pitcher, The pitchers had better results despite break numbers where you're like, eh, I don't know. Like, it seems like he's overthrowing a lot of them. I also do wonder, though, it seems like maybe throwing to the shadows and throwing to the corners is not a skill that's as like improvable and repeatable as just throwing a slider with nasty movement. And so to some extent, maybe what we're saying is like, look, the the worst pitchers hit the corners of the plate a third of the time, and the best pitchers hit the corner of the plate half the time, but the worst pitchers never throw with a lot of movement, and the best pitchers always do. I don't know. I, I do wonder if to some extent the fact that where you locate the pitch is harder to control than how much movement you put on it is why we emphasize movement more.
2: Yeah. And, you know, speaking of your thought about whether throwing the shadows a repeatable skill, I actually did a correlation test once where I looked at basically a pitcher's CSW rate in the heart of the zone mm-hmm. in one year, And then on the y-axis, it's the same rate for the next year. And what I found is that for the heart of the zone, the correlation, so the ear-to-ear correlation is a bit higher than... In the shadow zone, so maybe that has to do with what you're talking about. I guess it also has to do with the fact that in the shadow zone, there's a lot of, I guess, variance happening. So sometimes a well-placed pitch isn't called a strike because of the umpire. Yeah, and
5: sometimes a poorly placed pitch is.
2: (laughs) Right. And there are some batters who receive more of the benefit of the doubt, I should say. So there's a lot of things that pitchers can't control. So even though it's an important skill, maybe it's something very tricky to maintain.
5: Yeah, it's interesting. I've at various times tried to see if this is a real skill too. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times I basically say like, no, it's not. (laughs) You you look at two years of data and you're like, come on, there's no year to year. Like there's no evidence that this is a skill that being good at in year one contributes to being good at in year two. And then you look at like five year data and you're like, well, there's no evidence that this is a skill unless you're Kyle Hendricks. And (laughs) like, (laughs) definitely a skill for him. And so I do wonder if it's, if it's the kind of thing where for 95% of pitchers, it's just not a measurable skill. Like maybe they're a little better, a little worse, but it's all pretty close to average. And then there's just a few outliers who can do it. But I don't have like a good like tool set to describe that, like to describe how I'd know if that were the case or if I'm just cherry picking, like will Kyle Hendricks still be good at hitting the corners of the zone next year? I mean, I think yes, but I couldn't tell you why mathematically.
2: Yeah, Kyle Hendricks is that one pitcher who always ends up in different analysis. Yeah. <laughs> like He always finds a way because he's such a special pitcher and he does things that pretty much defy the rules of pitch design and what we know about baseball. But he's also a case study in the sense that, well, if Hendricks can do it, then maybe other pitchers can do it too. But they don't really do it. <laughs> right.
5: Like, like, if this guy can do this, couldn't you? Like, you throw, you know, much harder than him and like, you can say it to almost any pitcher in baseball. Like if Kyle Hendricks can do that, so can you. He throws a changeup that moves some and a sinker that moves some and both in the 80s. And I don't know, like no one else can do it. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Another thing I want to ask you, Justin, is about Adrian Hauser, because he's a pitcher that I've always been interested in. I always like kept thinking he'd break out. He, he has like a kind of not the same kind of throwback skill set as Hendricks, but like a more recent throwback. He'd sinker heavy and... The Brewers especially are preaching more four-seamers, more four-seamers, and then they have this guy who is really good, who looks nothing like their mold of pitchers, but now he's basically getting a bunch of strikeouts and making it look like he's not. I mean, he's still throwing sinkers, but he's getting strikeouts like he's not. So what's going on there?
2: Yeah, that game was... It was weird. I saw that Hauser had 10 strikeouts, and already that's already... That alone... That caught my attention, and then I looked at his sinker usage, and it was something like what, 75%? <laughs> and I, I was I like, have this article up now, and it's bizarre. I was like, I have to write about this. He basically had perfect command of the sinker, where they headed to the inside corner from the right-handed batter's perspective. Basically, 90% of his, his pitches were, were on that edge, and...
5: Presumably the best place to locate sinkers.
2: Right, and I did notice that overall, not just that game, but compared to 2019 his sinkers had moved more towards that inward direction which I said that it may suggest some future success now after that game he hasn't been that sharp which is a bit disappointing but I still think that like the fact that he achieved what he did on that day I think that speaks to his raw potential
5: yeah and I honestly like I know this is silly and you're not supposed to care too much about uh single batter matchups but I'll see if I can get Jesse Winker's career line against him. It's like absolutely ridiculous. I think he has like five home runs and 10 plate appearances or something. Like he gave up two home runs to Winker in his latest like clunker of a start against the Reds. And I just think that he cannot, like Jesse Winker just sees his pitches perfectly. And I mean, he's already a sinker pitcher, but he seems to see Hauser particularly well. So I would read a little bit less into that. I know this is a very unsaver metric thing to say, but... When you tell me that a guy is like, I think, 6 for 8 with 5 home runs or something, or 6 for 8 with 4 home runs against a guy, I'm willing to believe that he actually has some skill hitting him. It's a little bit different from like, over 10 at-bats, he's batting 500. Like, home runs are not flukes.
2: Yeah, I do agree, actually. You know, you just happen to have a pitcher that you're good against. I think that totally makes sense. I also have a very fun pitcher-batter matchup stat. I don't remember the exact numbers, but apparently Mike Trout doesn't have a an extra base hit against Tunjin Ryu in, I guess, like a dozen plate appearances. I'm not sure. Like, it could be more, but huh. that just stood out to me. Interesting. Yeah, because you'd feel like, you know, Mike Trout versus a 85 mile per hour changeup, he's going to yeah. crush it. But, and then again, Ryu has his own style of sequencing and pitch mix, so you know he's also an exception that is really interesting
5: yeah i wonder what's going on here and i have these stats up because i, I had it wrong winker is eight for 13 against hauser with five home runs he's hitting six fifteen, six fifteen, one point seven six nine. 1.769 so like that's pretty good yeah pretty yeah, good yeah i, I think ryu <laughs> i think that there must be several hitters who we just don't really know about who struggle to pick up ryu because he's just like he's not in the same way as Hendrix weird but he he does throw like a lot of things that there just aren't a lot of other people doing similar things. Mm-hmm. Like I think he uses the the sinker four seam combination like a lot better than your average pitcher who throws both a sinker and a four seam. Like yeah. his actually seem to like complement each other and he uses them enough in all the counts that it doesn't feel like you can just sit on one. But also like he uses pitches that are well suited to when he's pitching. I could see that if you don't face him a lot, that can be really hard to get used to.
2: Yeah. And the thing is, though, this could be just a baseball savant thing, but I don't think he's really throwing a sinker anymore. Really? Yeah. I haven't watched him this year. The sinker rate is down to 2%. Oh. Yeah. And instead, he's more of a... So basically, he upped his changeup rate to like 30%. Whoa. I mean, yeah. I guess it had
5: already been going up, like even in LA and then last year. Yeah, I'm looking at yeah. it now.
2: So he's pretty much following the, the advice of destroy your best pitch more often.
5: Yeah. Wow, he really cut down on sinker usage this year, huh? Yeah. And I guess he's just adding everything else to make up for it. I guess he throws three fastballs, or now two, but he always threw that cutter, too. Yeah, it just seems like it would be a very uncomfortable at bat. It's just that, like, it seems like the pitch will probably move somewhat straight, but in any variety of locations and speeds, I don't know how easy that is for, uh, for hitters to pick up, as opposed to, like, you know, if you got, like, Jordan Hicks or Tyler Glasnow, somebody who's going to throw, like either very fast or much slower, but with, much, with a lot of bend.
2: Yeah, that's a topic for study later on, like the <laughs> yeah. difference between velocity differential versus like just having a variety of, of velocities. I, I totally
5: agree. I cunningly brought this one up at the end because I don't think we'll be able to answer it on the podcast and it might bog us down, but <laughs> it's kind of cool <laughs> when pitchers can do it.
2: Yeah. And that's, I guess, something you also brought up in your slider article about the second one, where you examined the difference between slider velocity and fastball velocity and how that affects the effectiveness of the slider.
5: Yeah. So the answer that I got from that was that you want to throw your slider like seven to eight miles an hour slower than your fastball. And I don't know if I really think that's a, a worthy conclusion or if there's just some kind of Some kind of like confounding variable hidden in there that's making those sliders look better because they have some other trait. I will say that if you're looking at a pitcher and his slider is in that band, it's on average going to be more effective. But I don't know if you're if you were designing a slider in a lab, if you'd need the velocity gap. But I will say that it's kind of interesting that the ones that go really close in speed to fastballs don't work effectively unless they have really, really kind of outlier-ish break. And I think that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, if you're going to throw two pitches kind of the same speed, they better
2: move differently. Right, so either one thing or the other, basically. Yeah,
5: exactly. Like, if you if you have a slider that's like a slow fastball, but kind of a tight slider, so it doesn't have too much movement, well, you're kind of just throwing a slow fastball. But then if you look at some of the guys who have the, like, pitchers who are really good at throwing sliders without, I'm not putting this right, but where their slider is their only skill. Where you're like, well, that guy has a, a medium fastball and... Like, no third pitch, and he's still really effective. Why is that? It's probably because he throws just, like, a really, really, really impressive slider, right? Like, that's my guess. I'm trying to think of, like, who that would be. Luke Jackson is, like, maybe my, like, archetypical example of this, actually. Because, I don't know, he's been an effective reliever off and on. I mean, he looks, like, kind of off right now. But he never had a good, like, anything except just a slider that no one could hit. And (laughs) that was just enough. So I think there's definitely a lot more like room for study, not just on sliders, but kind of all pitches, like, if you break them down like this, does that teach you anything new about them? And I, I think it's possible the answer is no, but I learned a lot about, like, if I see a pitch, like, will I think it's like, ooh, is that a good pitch? Well, now I have some factors that I didn't before that I can use to say whether I think it's good. I think that's kind of cool.
2: Right. And I would love to see An article about the changeup because, for example, the Dodgers basically aren't throwing any changeups, but the Yankees are throwing more changeups. And I feel like there's a clash of philosophies there about whether or not a changeup can be effective compared to a slider or a curveball like the breaking ball types.
5: Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you think of guys as pairing like sinkers with changeups. That's kind of the classic classic, changeup, like offset. And the Dodgers throw a lot of sinkers.
2: But rarely changeups.
5: Yeah, it's, it's interesting that they don't uh, they don't staple those two together. But, I mean, it, it's obviously working for them.
2: Yeah, the Dodgers are weird. They do a lot of weird things. And sometimes I imagine that maybe, you know, this could be a weird theory, but maybe being a perennial 100-win team gives them more leeway to do experiments. I don't know. Yeah, I could
5: see that. There's this thing I, I learned from my old job. I, I used to work in finance where people always want to copy, like, the guy who's succeeding. And... <laughs> Like sometimes that's good because they're succeeding for a reason. But some of those not everything they do is actually a success. And some of the like the actual skill is weeding out what they're doing that's good versus what they're doing that's like <laughs> just random. So you can imagine the Dodgers are really good at like let's say like hitter development, and then they're like, well, we're not going to throw any changeups. And everyone's like, ooh, the Dodgers have figured out not to throw changeups. <laughs> it's like well, they don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's easy for us to think that oh, a good team is doing something so. You know, that must be the new innovation in pitch design. But, you know, it could be just a coincidence. They just don't roster pitchers who throw change-ups, you know. Yeah, totally. They just that. found found other pitchers who are good, but they don't throw change-ups. They, they throw sliders and curveballs. So. And if we look at the stat next year, it could be different. You know, they could have signed someone who throws a lot of changeups, and the rate could go up. We never know. But it's still interesting to see the contrast and try to figure out... Maybe there's something, but chances are there also might not be anything there.
5: Yeah. And even like, let's say they did think they figured something out and they, they have decided they're going through throw a fewer change-ups. Well, there are 29 other teams with analysts and like, those guys aren't dummies. <laughs> they're all <laughs> like really good. I mean, if you look at the, the caliber of people who are getting hired there, it's like, <laughs> it's just insanely high. So maybe the Dodgers think they figured something out and they didn't. And so all we can do is kind of look at the evidence and say, hey, did we did we learn anything about change-ups? Because they're not going to tell us. I think that's one of the cool things about doing this analysis too, is that you kind of get to think along.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's what teams are doing, but on a more micro scale and something we can comprehend. So yeah, it's been (laughs) fun to read. And I also think for myself, you know, what can I add to this? Something that we
5: can comprehend is a great way to put it because some of these big data sets are just like, I don't know, I'm I'm not working with that. There
2: are like a million rows of data that they use. With all yeah. these fancy bootstrapping techniques to condense them into, I don't know.
5: <laughs> yeah, but like, don't, don't you just want to know that I looked at 10 of Brian Shaw's pitches and they broke different ways? Like, that's a lot more satisfying to me.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's actually a result of me watching a game. Yeah. Which is what I always wanted to do as an analyst. Yeah,
5: couldn't agree more. Well, on that note of what Justin has always wanted to do as an analyst, I think that is uh, time for me to start my day and you to end yours. Thanks for coming on. Hopefully the first of many appearances. And yeah, it's great to talk to some of the new contributors and kind of see who's breathing new life into the site. You know, Fangraphs always cycles through writers. That's how it works. Hopefully we'll cycle through many more because it means that it's still a great place to work and getting people great jobs coming out. Justin Choi, thanks
2: for coming on the show. All right. That was fun. Thank you.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is a great daily update on the many things we have going on at the site. We will be back with another episode next week. Talk to you then.